So we are on Matthew 7 this morning. Our scripture reading is from 7, Matthew 7, 7 to 12. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receive. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gift to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have done do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks as always, Eric. Appreciate your prayers for sure. Well, we're almost finished with the Sermon on the Mount, as you can see. It's just Matthew 5 through 7, and we're getting towards the end of that, so we'll be transitioning to something different, but the sermon isn't quite finished yet. And today, we get to see God's heart toward us. A lot of what Jesus has been discussing is our heart toward him and our heart toward others, but today we get to see his heart toward us, and I would argue that's really a great starting point uh, and something that we need to grasp a lot more deeply, and so we get a a window into God's heart toward us here that Jesus was very uh, aware of, being the son of God, and he wants us to have an understanding of his heart toward us and what that means when it comes specifically to asking and seeking and and knocking, uh, especially in the context of prayer, which is very important to us as we uh, also highlight prayer. Let me grab my little clicker. So let's take a look at this. Uh, The first thing that we read in verses 7 through 8, uh, we see these repeated uh, verbs here, present imperatives. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. It will be open to you for everyone who receives, asks, receives. And everyone who, to him who knocks, the door will be open. He who seeks, finds. So, let's Note those ask, seek, and knock verbs there too. And the first thing we see is this is actually an ongoing activity. So if you're a grammarian, you enjoy knowing this kind of stuff. Those are in the present imperative. Ask, seek, knock. Which means you keep asking, you keep seeking, you keep knocking. This is not just a one-time activity. It's something you do repeatedly, over and over Again, 
J.A. Carson puts it this way, persistence is required, but persistence in what? The answer is persistence in prayer, not prayer envisaged as an occasional pious request from some isolated blessing, but in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, the prayer, prayer that is a burning pursuit of God, this asking is an asking for the virtues Jesus has expounded. This seeking is a seeking for God. This knocking is a knocking at heaven's throne room. I, I really enjoy that phraseology, a burning pursuit of God. There is a passion behind this that is being encouraged, as Jesus says, this is what you ought to do when you come to God. And the asking, according to Carson, is the virtues that Jesus has expounded. So if you've been here along the way and you've been with us from the Beatitudes, but also as we've talked about things like loving your enemy, or even the passage just before, not judging others too harshly, having, having a perspective of grace towards somebody who's maybe offended you as well. Those are the virtues that he says you ought to be asking for, maybe in a tighter sense. What is just come before. And in fact, what about seeking? You seek after something as well. This is the seeking, Carson says, is for God himself. And we've talked about seeking God's face versus his hand, seeking what God can do for you versus just seeking God himself. And when I did the call to worship reading from Psalm 27, that's what David is after. He's just after God's presence, period. Not what God can give, but who he is. If you are only after what God can give, then you'll start measuring things and saying he hasn't given enough. But he himself, like Abram was told in Genesis 15:3, I am your great reward. God is your reward. He is your presence. It is he who has drawn the, the boundary lines, and he is the one who's at the center of that. So we're seeking his presence and knocking on a door for heaven itself to be revealed to us. So the presence of God there in heaven. This is the... This is what we're asking for, seeking and, and knocking. And we do that ongoing. It's not just a one-time thing. It goes on and on. So we did at the beginning of the year, we printed this start in prayer, right? Take a sip. Hopefully you're still taking a sip. And starting in prayer, and there's that organic element of just making prayer a vital, vibrant, refreshing, normal part of your life in ways that aren't, um, aren't done from a top-down perspective. You gather here, Eric prays, it's amazing, and it's fantastic, but what about you? Are you doing that as you wake up? Are you taking a sip? Or as you start a meeting, or as you're in a class, or as you're going to play a, a game, or watch a movie, and there's something organic about it. And we've also given opportunities for us to highlight prayer, and we'll keep rolling those out over the course of the year. But if you're anything like me, this can be a little bit like a New Year's resolution. I don't know how many of you make New Year's resolutions, or how many of you are wise and old enough to stop doing it, because you don't ever seem to follow through with them. Some of you might. Some of you with military background or people who are just really committed and disciplined, but there's a handful of people who aren't. And there's excitement on the front end. You get, it's, it's new. It's fresh. This is kind of how I roll a lot, too. Big idea. Roll it out. And then after a couple of months, it just sort of fizzles and fades. And it's hard to maintain. It is hard to maintain that level of intensity, of course. 
You know, you, that's, life has got its ups and downs. But this is about the time when it's starting to hit me. You know, the pray for this every single Monday, and maybe you checked on the back. I will pray daily for all these requests. And if you haven't been faithful to that, you're not alone. I've done the best I can, and there, there already I see a, a typical pattern, which is enthusiasm, excitement, commitment, and then I might forget for a day, and then two. And then it's hard to get back into the rhythm again. And so this is going to be my year, I know. Hopefully more success than failure in that respect, more victory than loss. But I think it's important as I look at this, ask, seek, and knock, it is a continuous activity. It is a renewed commitment. It is continuing to go back. When we started talking about prayer, we looked at you know, that parable in Luke of the, the, the persistent widow who wanted justice and kept going back again and again to an unjust judge. And finally, he just said, okay, fine, I'm so tired of you coming. I'll give you what you want. It's kind of a risky parable that Jesus told because it casts God in a negative light. Of course, the focus there is you persevering. And here we have a text that actually presents who God's heart toward us actually is more like. A God who is a father who loves to give good gifts. And if he's going to give those good gifts, that is motivation for us not to give up. Let's keep asking. Let's keep seeking. Let's keep knocking for these things that God has put on our hearts. These are ministry leaders that have come together and said, this is what we need. We need more adults helping in K-Kids because it's a mass of humanity at times, 17-plus kids with a wide age range. And the goal of trying to equip them to love Jesus is difficult to do sometimes with the madness and chaos that comes from that ratio. So let's ask. Let's seek. Let's knock. And let's keep doing it. Let's not give up. Persistence is required. And in this string of words as well, there's actually not just this ongoing activity here in the present imperative, but an increasing urgency. So first you ask, and then you seek, and then you knock. Imagine a child coming in from a day of school, opening up the door, and what's the first thing a child might say? Whose name is usually first on the list if there's a need? Mom, right? Mom. In fact, this has happened plenty of times before. I've got four kids. I'll be sitting right there. Mom! The guy, I could get something. I guess. I don't know. It's convenient sometimes, I'll admit. But at the same time, like, mom, mom, mom. And if mom doesn't answer, uh, the kid the kid asks mom, what do you do next? You go looking for mom or yell louder. But let's assume that after the yelling and there's nothing, and, and then they'll come to me, where's mom? I'm like, I, am I my wife's keeper or something like that? I don't know. She's in the house somewhere. Go look for her. So if, you, if I have a desperate need, you'll seek out the mom. And maybe mom is, you know, in, in the bedroom with the door locked because she's looking for some peace. She knows it's that time of day or whatever, but that kid's seeking and starts knocking on the door. There's this kind of escalating urgency. You know, you ask and not getting the reply. You seek and then you start knocking on the door. Open up. And that's the picture here that Jesus has. And even if it's not an intended escalation, the repeated images speak about the urgency. It's not half-hearted. You're asking, you're seeking, you're knocking. There's this urgency about something. 
And so you're pursuing it. And this is the picture that Jesus is giving us of how we come to God in prayer. And what do we ask for? What are we seeking for? What are we knocking about? Um, I would suggest anything and everything. You're seeking what's on his heart. You're asking him for what's on his heart, as we've seen, but also what's on yours. It's not, it's not, we know we can pray in confidence, God, I want you to, 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 to make me less judging of other people, because he's just talked about that. But it's not limited only to that, because this is a relationship that we've been invited to. It just, that's how relationships work. And you want to enter into it with the mentality that he wants us to share what's on our hearts as well. And the, the scriptures scream this out from beginning to end. We come to him with everything, knowing he will give us exactly what we need and having the assurance that we can ask him for what we want. And we could spend some time doing psalm searches. Again, we've done this before. Just open up God's word, read out the psalm, and you're going to detect both of those things. Things that David and the psalmist are crying out for what, God, what they need, but also what they want. God, I want you to move for this nation, for me. I want you to, I want you to change the situation. How long do I have to endure this current situation? How long, O oh Lord? He's going straight to God and asking him for a resolution to something that feels like he can't move on any longer. Jesus himself did this in the garden. Can you take this cup away from me? That's, that was Jesus struggling with the emotional anguish of knowing he's bearing all the sins of the world and he's doing what pleases the Father. But in his humanity, that is difficult. And he says, is there a way out of this? That's giving his heart. But not my will, but yours be done. And he's trusting in, in God no matter what, believing somehow it's best, even if it didn't seem like a good gift at the time. Because God is accomplishing something beyond it. We can confidently pray for God's will to be done in our lives and for his character to be manifest in our lives. But God's heart invites us to pray for what is on ours also. Now, do we always get what we think we want or need? Anybody here always get what they ask for in prayer? I'm going to wait. Ten seconds for the introverts. And also, just because i like you to start praying through some requests I have also. Anybody? Has anybody here gotten some of what they've wanted from God? Yeah. Not everything, but some. Some of you may feel like I've never gotten anything from God that I've asked. And I, I, I get that. You might not be looking for the provisions that you have all around you, and it feels like he's not listening. Is he really good? Do we always get what we think we want or need? J.I. Packer, in his treatment on this text, says, Being good, our Heavenly Father gives only good gifts to his children. Being wise as well, he knows which gifts are good and which are not. If we ask for things which are not good, either not good in themselves or not good for us or for others, directly or indirectly, immediately or ultimately, he denies them. And only he knows the difference. 
We can thank God that the granting of our needs is conditional, not only on our asking, seeking, and knocking, but also on whether what we desire by asking, seeking, and knocking is good. Thank God he answers prayers. Thank God he sometimes denies our requests. And that sounds like a reasonable explanation, and it certainly is. God, God gives us what we need, and in his wisdom, he gives it at the right time and the right way. And sometimes he withholds, just like a parent would with a child, who the child thinking is asking for something good, the parent may know, and has just an entirely different perspective on what's going on. It is a parent-child relationship. God is the one who sits in all eternity and knows how everything is, being, is fitting together. And so we shouldn't be surprised if there's a little bit of mystery in what feels like silence at times. And so there's a reasonable explanation, and hopefully that's helpful. But behind all of that, we really have to ask, do we really believe that God is a good father? Do we really believe the heart of God is for us? and not against us, no matter what happens in the context of his provision. Do we really believe that? Is, can we trust his heart toward us, no matter what? And Jesus anticipates that, and in verses 9 through 11, he goes on to say, Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And the main point here is this. God is a Father who gives good gifts to his children when they ask. That's it. That's what Jesus is trying to teach. If you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, if you're a child of God, and we've talked about the entry point, you have spiritual poverty, you can only trust in Christ, and then you become, through adoption, a son or a daughter of God, then that is his disposition toward you. He is a good father, and he loves to give good gifts. So ask. And Jesus says, even though we are evil, we still have a sense of what a good gift is. And part of that focus, of course, is on our own character. We struggle with sin. Part of it's on our capacity. Despite our sin, we know how to give good gifts. And actually, we delight in giving those gifts. If you, if, even if you're not a parent, if you have a relationship with somebody that you, you care for, you delight to give good gifts to that person, with a friend or parent or a coworker, whoever it may be. But this is the language of parents. That's the idea. How fun is it to provide a gift that somebody really likes? Some of you are gift givers. That's your language of love, right? You've heard of the love languages. The gift givers. Wow. I, and we have a gift giver in our family who thinks a lot about the exact gift to give somebody. And it's just it's something that, that is delightful to them. And a parent enjoys this. And this is the argument from the lesser to the greater. He's done that with the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. If God cares for them, he cares for you even more. And if you, though you are evil, can give good gifts to your child, and sometimes it may even be with mixed motives, how much more God, who is perfect, whose character is pure, who knows everything, how much more is he going to give good gifts when you ask? Your Father in heaven. Jesus says, your Father in heaven 
Well, that's interesting because that means he has the power and the authority to respond. He's in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. That's from the Psalms. He has the knowledge of every intimate detail and he sees the bigger picture. He knows exactly what you need. That's a mystery sometimes when you have somebody who's like, I don't know what to give this person. Sometimes it's like you ask for, for lists, lists to give to somebody, right? Or what is your list so I can buy exactly the right thing? And that list, especially if you're a child, may change from, from moment to moment, week to week, certainly from year to year. But God, who knows all things, knit you together in your mother's womb, knows every hair on your head, every thought that you have. He is poised, ready to give you a good gift. Apparently, he delights in gift giving. I guess it's a love language for the God of heaven to give good gifts. So ask, seek, knock. But perhaps more significantly, he highlights once again, as he's done before, that God is your father. He's your father. It was important to Paul that we understand this, even from the standpoint of the culture in which he was speaking. In the book of Galatians, he says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. There's the access point. How do you get to be in this relationship? Your faith, your trust in Christ alone. That's it. And by virtue of you saying yes to Christ and trusting in him alone and not in your own capacities or abilities, realizing he is the only way that you can be made right with God in, in relationship with him, then you receive all the rights and the privileges of a son of the culture of that day, the firstborn son who would receive everything, the family name, the family goods, all that kind of stuff. You get that. All of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You get all the promises of Abraham. You are a child of that line. And you get all the benefits and the privileges, the full inheritance of it. And it doesn't matter what ethnicity you are or what gender you are. None of that stuff matters. You get treated like the firstborn son. And so when you come to God asking, seeking, and knocking, it's like a child coming to a father who says, you get everything that the firstborn son would get in the culture of that day. And so you have every right to ask your father. I mean, you can almost plead your case. I'm your son. I'm your daughter. And I know you give good gifts. So ask. Now, this concept or idea of God being a father is a pretty important one. And for those of you who maybe have negative role models or think of parents, uh, perhaps a father could be other figures as well, that's distorted. Part of what God does as he grows us up is shows us an image of what it ought to look like, the parent-child relationship. But for a lot of us, it's just distorted. And behind your, your, your unwillingness to ask maybe is some hurt and disappointment on the human level or perhaps the heavenly one as well. So it's a, I think it's really important for us to understand that when we come, we need to understand the motivations behind it and the heart of God. Is God really a good father who gives good gifts and it could be a stumbling block for some of us 
there's actually a, an entire curriculum that's been written about this concept. It's called Sonship. I don't know if any of you are familiar with this or not. Uh, it was written by a pastor a handful of years ago and a group called World Harvest Mission that he started uh, that's now Surge, and we support some Surge missionaries. But this whole curriculum was really written for people who have already said yes to Christ, who are still thinking and acting like orphans. You are a son or a daughter, but the realities of that haven't quite sunk in yet. And you have a distorted image, maybe, of who God is or who you are. So th this actually was not written for people who are like, oh, what does it mean to be a child of God? It's for people who think they already are, but are still struggling with what that looks like on a daily basis. And so it's, it's an opportunity to dig in a little bit deeper, and it's been uh, teased out in some other curriculum and stuff. But I'm going to read just a, a little extended portion here on the very, very first lesson. Uh, but one of the people who was participating in it. One day when I was very young, I saw my older sister hanging up my father's white business shirts on the clothesline to dry. I was suddenly filled with the urge to hang up one of my daddy's white shirts. He was my daddy too, and I was his daughter. I loved him in my childlike way and wanted to express it. I couldn't reach the clothesline. It was too high. But when I saw a wheelbarrow in the yard and its handles were just the right height for me, I didn't notice how rusty it was, though, and I rather joyfully clothespinned the wet shirts to the handles. When my dad got home and saw the shirt on the wheelbarrow, he became very angry with me, and he punished me severely for ruining his shirt. I'd not realized the impact that events, that events and others like it had on me. As I remembered the scenes from the past, I saw that through the years, I had not been believing that my father in heaven was any different than my earthly father. I'd not been listening when he described himself. In short, I hadn't been believing the gospel, that by faith in Christ, in his perfect atoning sacrifice, he now loves me and is forever for me and delighted in me. In Christ, he has made me beautiful and pleasing to him forever. So the next morning, I told our, our, our counselor that I thought I was beginning to understand. I told him the memory and said that I guess if the father saw me standing next to the wheelbarrow with the ruined shirt on it, he would forget the shirt and hug me. You still don't understand fully, the counselor said. God would not overlook the shirt, but take it, put it on, and wear it to work. And when someone commented on the rust marks, he would say, let me tell you about my little girl and how much she loves me. I was overwhelmed with that realization. I began to realize that my Christian life had been a continual effort to earn God's pleasure by getting the shirts hung up right. God would answer if my prayer was right. God would smile upon me if my theology was correct. How overpowering it is now to realize that because of Christ, I can experience a daily freedom to move on out into people's lives. I can love others. I can obey God with my heart because I don't fear that he will be furious with me if I get the shirt a bit rusty. There's freedom to love that I have not known since the moments before my father got home that day very long ago. Before sonship, we thought we had to have our acts together. We had to know the right thing to do and be able to do it. What a relief to know that God meets us where we need him. I don't have to know. I can ask. 
I don't have to pretend to be strong. I can be weak and come to him. I can admit my weaknesses and my worst cruel sins and ask others to pray for our children and me. It is here that we have seen numerous answers to specific prayers born out of our weakness and our sinfulness. What a joy to know our needs are a window to God, not an obstacle that makes him disgusted with us. We still have much to learn, particularly about God's love for us and Jesus. We stumble instinctively, but we always know who to return to, and that has been as significant a change in us as our initial salvation. Coming to God as a father, ask, seek, knock. Because his heart towards you is to give a good gift. That's his disposition towards you. And so the motivating force for anything like this you know, is not just to see the answered prayers, but because we delight in God's presence and he delights to hear what our heart is, whatever the outcome may be. We need to be drawn more into the heart of God. And that becomes a motivating for, force for us to do anything, to obey, to love, to forgive, and even to pray. Father, I do pray for us that you give us a fresh understanding of the depth and the intimacy you're calling us to. It's no wonder that Paul, in the book of Ephesians, said, I pray that you, writing to a church of people who said, we're followers of Christ. He said, I pray that you would have the strength to grasp how high, wide, deep, and, and the depth, the full dimensions of the love of God that's expressed in the person of Christ. And that is a motivating force for us. To be honest, we can be honest with you. We don't have to fear. To recast our understanding of what it means to walk as citizens of heaven. To be able to extend grace to others who don't even deserve it. Out of the grace that's been extended to us. And we know this is a, a growth process. And thank you that even as Jesus says, ask, seek, and knock, it's an ongoing reality, ongoing imperatives. We keep doing it. So we want to do that to a Father who gives good gifts. We look forward to what those gifts are. And, and certainly look forward to that time when heaven meets earth and there's Everything has been tied up and, and some of our questions maybe are, are sort of answered because a lot of times we look and we're still confused. But we know if Jesus' words are true that your heart toward us, your disposition toward us is of a father smiling at his child and saying, come and ask. I give good gifts. So let us ask and seek and knock. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.